to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome back to our recent developments in business and corporate litigation podcast series. My name is Jessica Mendelson, and I'm an associate at Paul Hastings in Palo Alto, California, where I practice employment law with a focus on employee mobility and trade secrets. I am the co-editor of the ABA's Recent Developments in Business and Corporate Litigation 2020 book and the co-chair of publications for the Business and Corporate Litigation. My co-host today is Emily Stover. Thanks, Jessica. Hi, everyone. My name is Emily Stover. I'm also a Paul Hastings associate in Palo Alto, California. Like Jessica, I also practice employment law and employee mobility and trade secret litigation. I'm the vice chair of publications for the business and corporate litigation section. Thanks so much, Emily. Uh, Today, we have two fantastic speakers joining us to discuss recent developments in employee mobility and trade secrets. Our first speaker is Robert Milligan. Robert is a partner at Cyfarth Shaw, where he specializes in trade secrets, computer fraud, and non-competes, and co-chairs the firm's trade secret, computer fraud, and non-compete practice. Robert's practice includes a wide variety of commercial litigation and employment matters, including but not limited to unfair competition, trade secret misappropriation, and other intellectual property theft. Robert also has extensive experience in trials, binding arbitration, and administrative hearings, as well as mediations and appellate proceedings. Our second speaker is Jennifer Baldocki. Jennifer is a partner and chair of the Employee Mobility and Trade Secrets Practice Group at Paul Hastings, and her practice focuses on employee mobility and intellectual property, including trade secrets, covenants not to compete, unfair competition, and fiduciary duties. Jennifer has extensive trial experience and litigates trade secret misappropriation claims, as well as disputes over restrictive covenants in employment-related agreements. Jennifer also acts as the co-chair for the Los Angeles Employment Law Department. Jennifer and Robert, we really appreciate you joining us here today. To start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your practices? Sure, absolutely. Jessica and Jessica and Emily, thank you so much for having us today. Uh, you went through a, a very nice description of my practice. Just to add a little bit of color to that, I actually started at Paul Hastings uh, many, many years ago, and I started working in the commercial litigation department. Um, and during that time, I spent a significant amount of uh, time and focus on trade secret matters. And um, many of those matters would involve employees who were leaving companies or being accused of leaving companies and taking trade secrets. I I later moved into the employment department at Paul Hastings and um, really thought it made sense because it was the perfect combination of my practice involving trade secrets and general employment law, um, just because of the nature of many of these claims. So during the time I've been in employment, I have focused not only on employee mobility, covenants not to compete in trade secrets, but also on traditional employment claims such as discrimination, harassment, wrongful termination, et cetera. And I find that it's a real complementary practice because these issues are often interwoven and uh, my focus is, does tend to be on cases where we see multiple issues 
that cover the gamut of, of um, both intellectual property and um, employee-employer disputes. Oh, great. Yeah, this, this is Robert Milligan. I'm a partner at uh, Cypher Shaw. I've been with uh, Cypher for approximately uh, 17 years, and uh, ever since I started with Cyfarth, I've been doing uh, trade secrets and non-compete um, litigation and advice. Uh, currently, the uh, the co-chair of our our national uh, practice. Um, I think this is great that you guys are or- organizing this uh, series of podcasts. Uh, I think it's really appropriate. Uh, you're coming up with some uh, you know timely uh, topics and and issues. Um, the ABA is you know near and dear to my heart. I previously served as the uh, the chair of the uh, the trade secret subsection of the IP um, group, and um, worked with a number of others um, in um, putting forth the ABA's uh, support, uh, the, at least the IP section of the ABA support of the Defend Trade Secrets Act uh, when it was uh, um, you know passed, and so I was, I was delighted. To uh, be um, invited to uh, participate in today's uh, podcast. Well, thank you both for joining us. We're excited to hear your thoughts on some of the recent developments, um, starting with non compete agreements. You both clearly have significant experience in that realm, including counseling clients on a nationwide basis. So, what have you noticed about the recent shift we've seen in the treatment of non compete agreements, and how has this played out in your practice? Thanks, Emily. That's a great question. And I, I will just say it's been fascinating, especially over the last year or so, because we have seen a flurry of activity across the United States. Uh, there ha- has been increased focus on covenants not to compete in all areas, but in particular with low-wage workers. There have been some highly publicized cases involving uh, lower-wage workers and individuals who are non-managerial capacities being bound to non-competes. And uh, I think that the states have reacted to that by tightening up the restrictions uh, for most states, although in North Dakota, there was a little bit of an expansion, actually, on what's permitted. But just to give you a sense of the the recent, this is just recent laws that we've been following. Um, we've seen changes in Florida, in Maine, Maryland, New Hampshire, Oregon, North Dakota, as I mentioned, Rhode Island, Utah, Washington, Massachusetts, which was the big one, uh, very complicated statute was enacted. And of course, uh, before the pandemic, the FTC was also focusing on uh, looking at whether prior or additional limits on non-competes are warranted. So this has been a a hot topic. And how has it affected my practice? Uh, It just means a, a lot of time spent covering various statutes and really trying to keep an eye on legislative changes across the country so that we can advise clients who are doing business in all these different states. Um, Robert, how about you? Have you seen the same thing in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd echo those comments. I mean, I think both of us, um, you know, we're on both sides of the V and, uh, you know, we're looking at the drafting agreements and then, you know, litigating uh, agreements either for the plaintiff or the defendant. And so, yes, there's been an explosion of legislation across the country. And I think in, a, in at least uh, 10 you know, states um, have looked at narrowing uh, non-competes. And there's been particular attention on uh, using non-competes with low-wage workers. It's somewhat of low-hanging fruit uh, because I think, you know, most would agree that using um, 
you know, non-competes with sandwich workers or people that are very lowly compensated, um, engaging in sort of blue-collar tasks, that there's not necessarily a lot of appeal in having uh, non-competes with those employees. So it's it's somewhat of a populist issue. And I think, you know, what I would predict is I think as we get closer to the election, um, it may be an issue for one of the parties as far as, uh, you know, uh, getting out there with a populist agenda um, of saying that, you know, there shouldn't be uh, non-competes with you know, certain workers and we need to abolish uh, non-competes. Um, and there may be a, a call for, you know, sort of federal legislation um, because I think that there's um, there's some appeal in, um, you know, saying that certain classes of workers that you shouldn't have, you know, non-competes uh, with, and it, it, can, it can come across as a, as a no-brainer, um, you know, real low-hanging fruit um, type issue, um, but it's much more complicated than that because it, it, as we, you know, as we sit here now, it, it, it primarily is a function of state law, and you really have to understand, you know, the the state law, uh, the, the the individual um, statute, and then the case law, you know, construing that statute, and so, you know, um, you know, with respect to Washington State, for an instance. You know, they have a bright line now uh, with respect to the, the amount of compensation, um, you know, with the, the $100,000 uh, threshold, you know, um, if you want to have a non-compete, um, you know, you, the, the worker typically has to make a, at least that amount. Um, and, th- and there's a whole uh, formula about how that, you know, the, how that's calculated and whatnot. Um, but in other states, you know, they're, they're really focusing on, you know, low wage workers as far as either if you're, an, you know, uh, in, if you're non-exempt or if you're, your compensation measured by the, the, you know, the poverty guidelines uh, doesn't, doesn't exceed a certain amount, um, then, then you can't have non-competes there. So it, it, it's really a function of the individual uh, state law. And I think from a, a practical counseling perspective, a lot of clients have uh, that use uh, non-competes on a on a nationwide basis, you know, really have had to study, um, you know, what are the different nuances across the country in um, in, um, in in the in their non-compete law, and, and then and then basically update their agreements um, accordingly. But I, I do predict that we'll, we may see we may see some activity as we get closer to the election. I think this is a real. Um, it's a real issue that uh, it's, it's kind of one of those no harm, no fouls. I mean, you know, everybody agrees that certain employees shouldn't be asked to sign non-competes and you can throw it around uh, without a lot of uh, political uh, liability. Thanks, Robert. We'll be interested to see how that plays out in the upcoming election and see how COVID impacts all of this as well. Um, one of the nuances that we've seen come up is uh, in California recently, the California Supreme Court just issued a, a decision in XLV Biogen, which actually seems to move away from the trend of narrowing restrictions on non-competes and provides an interesting decision for practitioners. Do you have any thoughts you can share with us on that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, your characterization is, is fair. I mean, I, I don't I think it's somewhat of a, a surprising decision um, in the sense that um, it's treating, um, you know, s- certain type of agreements out that are not, you know, your typical employee uh, non-compete scenario, you know, sort of business to business type um, um, non-compete um, competitive restrictions as different from your typical, you know, employee 
uh, non-compete or non-compete that comes up in the, in the sale of a business. And so I think that is somewhat surprising. Um, I think there's also, you know, some significance to the decision about, um, you know, uh, part of the holding is that uh, you need to have um, independent wrongful conduct in the context of uh, a claim for interference with an at-will you know, contract. So I think, you know, the business community as, as, as parties enter into a contract, um, I think, you know, that's going to be uh, something to think about uh, from a transactional perspective as far as do you want to have uh, the freedom that you can get away from this contract, that the contract's terminable, you know, at will upon um, a notice period, or do you want to be, um, you know, tied up a little bit more as far as uh, on the contract and that it's not, you know, terminable um, at will? And I think that's, you know, that's significant. Um, and, um, you know, I think I think one, you know, practical takeaway from the case is that it may be somewhat of a game changer as it relates to uh, franchise agreements. I think, you know, based upon the uh, the language in the decision, um, you know, I think in-term uh, non-competes with, uh, with franchisees are, are going to be okay, um, if there was any doubt about that. And I think now... Um, you know, I think based upon the analysis and the decision, there's probably a good argument that, you know, post-term um, covenants not to compete in franchise agreements, um, you know, can be enforceable. Um, and so, I, you know, I think, you know, one sort of practical import of the decision also is that, you know, employers typically are looking for workarounds of uh, California's prohibition of non-competes with employees. And I think this opens up another... I think it opens up another loophole. You know, if it's, you know, if you use the label employee, you understand that, um, you know, 16600 applies and that they're, you know, you know, per se void. But when it's a business, uh, then, you know, you have a rule of reason uh, standard. Um, and so I think, you know, create, there's going to be creative lawyering here to try to find, you know, yet another exception um, to the prohibition against, you know, non-compete. So it's a, it's it's it's. It, I think you can probably fairly characterize it as a as a gift that's going to keep on giving because uh, there's going to be a lot of lawyer creativity trying to use uh, to use the decision, uh, you know, to uh, clients' advantages. And I would just add to that: the Itchell versus Biogen decision from the California Supreme Court is the first time we've had our Supreme Court speak to uh, covenants not to compete and sixteen six hundred in this robust fashion since 2008 in the um, Arthur Anderson Edwards decision. So it was, it was a decision. I think those who practice in this area were uh, really looking forward to reading. It's always interesting to see where the Supreme court stands on business and professions code 16600 in California and the rules on covenants not to compete. I think the Supreme court had a very interesting task um, in this case, because it was stuck with the two schemes, statutory schemes in California, which is um, not only 16600, but how the state looks at uh, antitrust violations under the Cartwright Act. And there was a real attempt by the Supreme Court to try to harmonize the Cartwright Act and uh, the rule of reasonableness that's applied to um, uh, restrictions on competition and, and make sure that that was consistent with the way 
the um, courts are addressing business-to-business -business transactions under 16600. So I, I understand how they got to the final holding where they applied a rule of reasonableness. I absolutely agree with Robert that whenever you see this type of rule being placed, and in California, now we have it with business-to-business -business transactions, I, it opens the door to what does that mean? What is reasonable? What does it mean to say that uh, the pro-competitive effects of a restraint are sufficient to allow the restraint to continue. So I expect that we will see uh, more litigation, maybe more creative lawyering in this front. And um, it was just a, a really interesting decision to, um, and it will be interesting to see how it plays out in California. Yeah, and I should add, I mean, I think if you look at the scope of the restriction about keeping a, a, a business from, you know, participating or, you know, engaging in, um, you know, actions, um, you know, competitive actions. I mean, it's somewhat, you know, it's somewhat sweeping. And so it, it's an interest in contradiction, you know, compared to um, how California is so uh, circumscribed and, you know, narrowly construing non-competes in um, the employment context and also in the sale of a business context. And that's kind of what I was left with as a little bit of a, um, I don't know if you'd say inconsistency, um, but I think, you know, there's a, there's sort of an analytical uh, void there is that, the, you know, I, we, I understand the notion of employment non-competes and narrowly construing those, but the court was really focusing also on that you, that we're going to really narrowly construe uh, non-competes in the context of a sale of a business and then saying, oh, well, but there's exceptions. Um, and so it's you, you're creating this this um, more uh, malleable and you know maybe a for more forgiving standard for business to business you know non competes you know based upon the um, you know the the Cartwright Act and the the statute um, as it applies to California. But then you know if it's a if it's a sale of a business, you're you're still going to narrowly construe uh, the non compete. And I think you know there's a little bit of a a little bit of an inconsistency there because that policy of sort of employee mobility, um, it, while it applies to the sale of a business, um, you know, you would think there would be a little bit more forgive, forgiveness uh, there. It's definitely going to be interesting to see how that plays out in future litigation. Um, another issue that we've been following closely in the employee mobility and trade secrets field is the question of the Defend Trade Secrets Act. Um, and I know when that act was first passed, there was a lot of discussion about whether that would significantly change the landscape of uh, trade secret misappropriation cases. Uh, what has that actually been like in your experience? Um, Jennifer, do you want to start? Sure, I'll start with that one. And uh, it's interesting because when I remember when the DTSA was enacted, we all thought this might be revolutionary and, and could really uh, we could really see some changes and some consistency across the states. Because the big concern um, prior to the enactment was that there's a patchwork of laws when it comes to trade secrets. Even though we have the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, uh, the states have uh, enacted some of them inconsistently, uh, different parts of it. And um, and also, of course, we've got a, a, a real variance in how non-competes are traded, just creating uh, more of a state law approach to employee mobility and trade secret law. So the Defend Trade Secrets Act was passed a few years ago, and in my practice, I have to say, 
I have not seen a significant difference in the way these cases are being litigated. It does give us an option of going to federal court if we would like to be there on a trade secrets claim. And, uh, you know, it's not always uh, the best place in my mind. It, it can be um, for certain reasons, but there are also many good reasons for the um, to be in the state court in uh, these cases. So, I, well, I think that we'll, we'll continue to watch the common law as it develops with the DTSA. I, I wouldn't say it's had a, a tremendous effect on our practice. And, and one thing I'd add, uh, often these um, claims are, when they are asserted in litigation, there, there will be a state law claim and a federal claim as well. And what we're seeing as the courts analyze the DTSA, they do tend to fall back on the well-developed common law um, involving um, the, the common law in the, the state specific statutory interpretations in, in looking at them. So um, at least in my practice, not a huge effect. I'd be interested to hear if Robert agrees or disagrees. I think I partially agree. I think uh, I, I think you're right. You know, there's been a lot of uh, you know, there's we're seeing more more and more decisions of of district courts and even um, federal appellate courts, you know, construing the DTSA. Um, and I agree with you that they, you know, they are looking to um, interpretations of uh, of states and how they've ad- how they've adopted the and interpreted the the Uniform Trade Secret Act in, the, in their state. But I have to say, I, I think I, I've been, you know, um, I've observed where uh, some of these um, courts, uh, either the district court or the federal court of appeal, that how they are taking an independent, um, you know, view as far as those judges that are just looking at the statutory language, you know, itself, and sort of um, either, you know, acknowledging that, yeah, you know, that there may be similar language in in a um, in a uniform trade secret statute adoption but that they get to interpret you know what the what what this federal statute means um, and so I, I found that that that's that's interesting um, and I, it also it also you know depending upon what you're advocating for it can give you a fresh bite at the apple you know particularly if you're advocating for a position that may not be supported under the under the state adoption of the Uniform uh, Trade Secret Act. I mean, I think you're also seeing um, uh, more, you know, obviously more filings um, in federal court for under the DTSA and, you know, cases that in the past would have just went to state court and particularly if there was no basis for, you know, diversity, I see you're seeing more cases being filed in in, in federal court. Um, And I agree with Jennifer as far as, that may that that might be unintended consequences because you may be dealing with uh, more stringent ESI standards. Um, you know there may be more issues about getting uh, a, a unanimous jury um, um, in in the federal court um, that unintended consequences. Um, but that you know the people that are bringing the, the attorneys bringing this, the cases on behalf of their clients they may be more comfortable um, in federal court. Um, particularly, I think, you know, um, some of the IP practitioners um, that do a lot of patent litigation as the standards for bringing, you know, patent um, infringement claims are either being foreclosed based upon um, not being good, able to go to favorable venues that you typically would want it to go to, or that, you know, the, the, the standards of what's protectable 
uh, have caused companies to reevaluate what to protect, either moving, you know, moving from a patent um, protection to a trade secret protection, you know, strategy. Um, I think that I think that's been um, I think that's been evident. I think that's been evident as as far as some of the cases that you're seeing um, um, being filed in the in the federal courts. I think it becomes um, when you're when you're dealing with your more typical customer list case. I think that's where the the federal courts maybe have a little less patience uh, with with the case. Um, but where it's one of those where it's dealing with clear technology and um, you know misappropriation of that technology, um, I think it's been sort of an, a, more, a pretty apt fit. Um, um, in, in proceeding in federal court, and I think that the, the federal judges, you know, by and large, have you know, stepped up to the plate in, in um, you know, um, allowing the cases and really, you know, critically looking at, you know, the, the you know, the, the the statute and the case law and develop the case law. Great, thank you. Another big development that we've seen in recent years is an increase in the amount of criminal prosecution for theft of trade secrets. It seems like every time I look up trade secret news, there has been another criminal prosecution that is plastered all over the headlines. Do you, starting with Robert, um, have any thoughts on that? And can you give us a little background? Um, I think, you know, what you have to understand with the, the federal prosecution is that, is, is that um, you know, the government has limited time and resources. And so they're, 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 they really are cherry picking um, their cases, and it's based upon. It oftentimes, it's based upon political, um, you know, um, objectives, political reasons, uh, you know, messaging from um, the attorney general, or you know, even in, I think even now in the case of the president, as far as what. Are you know what are what are our key objectives? You know, preventing you know alleged trade secret theft from China um, or other countries that we may not um, be getting along with. And so um, I think one thing that you know, and you've, you've probably had clients this be, on this before, is like you know why don't we you know get the feds involved? Why don't we get the government involved? Why don't we get you know the the bad guys you know arrested? Um, the government has very limited resources and time. There has to be something in it for them. And oftentimes they want a case that's worked up um, or that is in the process of getting worked up, but there also needs to be some appeal to it. Is it the, you know, the, the, the foreign national or the, um, uh, is it the foreign national that's misappropriating the trade secret so that we can send a message uh, you know, to the nation state and send a, a message to our uh, constituency that we're that we're we're going after um, we're, we're going after um, these particular wrong you know wrongdoers. So I think there's you know yes you're you're seeing more prosecutions. Um, you know the the press release is you know is very important. You know the the bang um, you know that that comes out of the press release and being able to send a message. Um, but I think for clients on a on a practical basis, they they. They, there's often a disconnect about, um, you know, what is the right case to get the um, the government in, involved, and the other part of that is understanding that the loss of control is that the government doesn't do what you, just what you want to do. Uh, they they have their own um, objectives and goals, and sometimes those could be, you know, counter to um, what you want to do. 
and uh, you know certainly the instances where you're you're trying to use the government to extract a, a civil benefit, like you're you're going to squeeze the other side by threatening prosecution and rummaging through their their offices you know, to try to extract some sort of commercial concession. You know that's a that's a big uh, that's a big no no, and that's often it's part of the education process with clients um, in that regard. Yes, I would add that the the recent prosecutions have been big news. Of course, we saw that uh, just a few couple of weeks ago, Anthony Lewandowski was sentenced to 18 months in prison for stealing trade secrets from Waymo, uh, which is the Google company that he left when he went to work for Uber, or actually to set up his own company, which was later sold to Uber. And uh, this made headline news. Uh, it is a high-profile case. It's the type of case, as Robert was saying, that the government is interested in taking on. We've seen others. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had David Nozel, who was prosecuted for information that he took from Corn Ferry. He also was sentenced to prison time. And then, of course, uh, again, a few years ago, we have Sergei Alenikov, who was the former um, a person working for Goldman Sachs. And he was actually prosecuted twice. The first time he was acquitted and the second time. Uh, after an appeal, he ended up being sentenced. So I, there is a serious potential for liability when somebody takes trade secrets. And in my mind, uh, one of the important messages that I think the government is trying to send in bringing these claims, and these are messages that we as attorneys can convey to our clients, and, and that is the workforce and employees who are handling or creating confidential information really need to be educated as consequences, both in the form of civil lines. I, I worry that sometimes individuals who have access to this type of information, they just don't feel that it's the same thing as walking into a 7-Eleven with a gun and stealing money, uh, but it can be. And if they're truly stealing information, stealing is stealing, and uh, that carries with it some very severe consequences. And so it may be that the government doesn't have the resources or will only pick up certain cases, high-profile cases, but still, whether or not they get prosecuted, there's a potential for liability there. And uh, I just think that there needs to be a culture of controlling this information and communicating to employees so that they fully understand the negative repercussions. Uh, and I think that the government, in bringing these cases and the press coverage that we're seeing, is attempting to convey that to the public, which is a good thing. Uh, I, when Lewandowski was sentenced, I believe just Judge Alsop refused to sentence him to house arrest because his feeling was that it was not enough of a disincentive uh, to prevent individuals from doing the same thing if it was seen as just sort of a slap on the wrist. So very interesting to watch the news on, on these cases. I expect we'll see more uh, as uh, the, the um, both federal and state prosecutors look and, and decide which of the cases are, are reasonable and, and necessary to bring in uh, the court of criminal law. Great. Thank you. Um, and it's going to be hard to follow up the excitement of criminal prosecution, but since this is 2020, we really do have to talk about COVID-19. Um, in your experience and in your practices, how have you seen employee mobility and trade secret theft impacted by the pandemic? Uh, Jennifer, do you want to start with this one? Sure. So I'm seeing a lot of activity, uh, more than before the pandemic, as we're, we're seeing people who are moving around 
uh, leaving jobs and working for uh, competitors, which is, all, is obviously the inspiration behind many of these claims, and uh, some creativity in the way individuals are being, I will say, accused or alleged to have taken information. Uh, there was a case, I believe it was in Texas, where uh, the employee took advantage of the fact that her company was shut down and no one was in the offices and allegedly went into the offices while no one was there and walked out with some really important documents that she then kept and uh, used in her next job. So it's a, it's an example of how uh, so much has changed in the last few months. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it runs the gamut from allegations of, of information changing hands in a way that it shouldn't to just the, the natural um, I think repercussions that we see when we have a highly mobile workforce is individuals are are going home and and in some sometimes losing their job or sometimes finding other opportunities and using this time to move on to a, a different employer. So it's it's been an interesting time. And then the only other thing I would add is something companies need to be aware of is whenever you have a, a your suddenly remote workforce, it's important. Uh, people left in a hurry back in the early part of this year because we were told to work from home rather than go to the office. But it's important for companies to take a look at those remote, remote work arrangements and make sure that um, there are protections in place to make sure you have reasonable efforts to protect your trade secrets, even though people are handling them in a home office environment now. That's right. I mean, I think what you have going on is, you know, chaos meets opportunity. So as the country, you know, a lot of workers were working at home, companies were not able to open, you know, everybody was working at home. Um, you have a lot of the digital data, um, you know, on people's uh, personal computers or people are working on their company computers, but, you know, maybe able to uh, you know, commingle important files in you know personal email accounts or store them on um, you know their 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 work computers and put them into the cloud or whatnot. So for those folks that you know are have that bent or are desperate, you know it's it, it can be somewhat of a perfect storm because you know the information is outside the you know outside the company not that it wasn't before because there's always you know been you know remote working and there's always been you know sales people that you know work remotely but now you have more more portions of the the workforce that are you know at home um, have idle time and may feel desperate uh, at the same time you know you, you know uh, those that are you know high level engineers those that are you know key sales people uh, it's also opportunity for competitors, you know, to poach those people or for those people to offer their services, either because they're dissatisfied or in, in other instances, you know, they've been, you know, laid off. And so um, it's one of those situations where, you know, companies uh, have scarce resources or, you know, their, their, their hair is on the, their, their hair is on fire, uh, but they, uh, you know, they, they have to, you know, they have to be, you know, kind of, you know, they have to be careful because, um, you know, it's, it's one of those instances where, you know, their, their information could go out, their information could go to a competitor, they could lose, you know, key sales. And so we've seen cases, you know, like that, um, where key engineers, key salespeople um, are, are going to competitors and, and lawsuits are being filed and injunctions are being granted. Um, but that's, that's another question is like in, in these times, certainly at the very beginning where it was hard to get access to a court, um, 
you know, it, it, it's whether or not you, you go for damages or do you, do you go for the injunctions. I think by and large, you know, the federal courts have been uh, much better than the state courts as far as accessibility and being, still being able to get, you know, injunctions and ha being, you know, being heard, even if it's on, you know, just the papers or on, on Zoom. I think another, you know, uh, another thing that we've seen coming out of COVID is, you know, there's been lots of uh, downsizing, uh, lots of uh, layoffs. Um, and, you know, protection of IP, getting all your, you know, information back, you know, sounds like a great idea, but if, if you're having a problem keeping the lights on, it may not be the, the biggest, you know, concern of yours. Um, that being said, it's kind of doing triage on, you know, what can we do minimally to make sure that, you know, we're, we're getting our stuff back and that employees are not, you know, um, um, going to use our stuff on a going forward basis. And so we've dealt with a lot of companies about, you know, what, what is the minimum, you know, what's the best practice, you know, what's the Goldilocks approach um, in these circumstances. Um, and it, you know, I think it's, it can, it's a challenge with the courts with respect to if you lay somebody off and then at the same time want to try to enforce a non-compete or want to try to pursue a claim against, you know, a trade secret misappropriation, if it's one of those sort of petty, you know, customer list cases where you don't really have any smoking gun type evidence, uh, I think the courts have less patience than a case where, you know, they, you know, it's pretty clear that, you know, they've taken key, you know, data related to customers that they're going to take or related to technology that they want to exploit. Um, so I think the bottom line is that clients are, are being more selective in the cases that they want to pursue. And court, and, and that's important too, because I think the courts have less patience for one for cases that just sort of reek of, um, uh, you know, just anti-competitive uh, litigation. Uh, even in those jurisdictions, you know, that allow non-competes, if it feels like you know it's going to be a real undue hardship, and you've actually, you know, you are, you actually terminated this employee, and yet you're trying to enforce a non-compete, I think the the courts have less patience. Well, thank you so much. I, I do think chaos meets opportunity is the best way I've heard to describe what we've uh, seen over the last few months in terms of employee mobility and data sets. So, Robert, Jennifer, really appreciate the time you've taken here today and for all of your valuable insights. This is actually our last episode of the podcast series, so we wanted to thank everyone who's tuned in and who's provided any input. We hope everyone's enjoyed exploring the chapters from our ABA book and from hearing such great insight from business law practitioners such as yourself. So until next year, thanks. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.